0: I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess is a proud part of the Champagne Showers podcast network. Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess. Today's guest is former Urbana Superintendent Don Owen. Good morning, Don. Good morning. From your days as a teacher in Minnesota to the in-school suspension teacher that you recently retired from, walk us through the trajectory of your career.
1: I fell in love with teaching when I was a junior in college, and I was doing volunteer work in the local schools in Northfield, Minnesota, and as I went through college, I took more and more internships and summer opportunities to get more involved with teaching. Right after college I decided to wait for my uh, future wife who was a year behind me at a different college and I worked at REI, Recreational Equipment Incorporated, for uh, a little over a year. We moved down to Champaign-Urbana so that my wife could go to graduate school here at the University of Illinois in speech language pathology and she's always wanted to be a school speech pathologist and so our plan was to stay here for three years and then pick anywhere in the country that we wanted to live. And after three years, we fell in love with this community. And I had a job at Urbana Middle School, which was I took kind of a side route to get there, too. My first job in Urbana Schools was an after-school psych coordinator for the after-school child care program, ASCCP, at Wiley Elementary School. And it was the first year that they opened up the ASCCP site at Wiley. And it was very kind of controversial because the principal wasn't a fan of having his school being used after school hours. And he and I became actually really good friends and allies in, in this effort. He was a great guy, Dr. Stanowski. From there, I went into subbing. I continued to work for ASCCP and then ended up on November 5th. 1990, landing a job as the 8th grade U.S. history teacher at Urbana Middle School.
0: So you went from a history teacher to what next?
1: After that, I uh, took a lot of roles in teacher leadership and professional development as a teacher. That led me to a position as what was called at the time Director of Gifted Education and grant-based programs. The Director of Gifted Education was a title and a concept that I quickly shed and turned it into director of grant-based programs and professional development and did a lot of teacher training, became certified in a number of professional development initiatives that the school district was interested in, and fell in love with kind of that teacher training thing. And that led me into administration. I became assistant superintendent in 2007 and then moved into the superintendency in 2013.
0: I understand you're not going to answer everything I ask. You can't because of legal concerns, but I'm still going to ask it and feel free to defer. In March of 2018, we started hearing the phrase restorative justice in relation to Urbana Schools. What exactly is that?
1: Sure. So I'm going to differentiate one thing really quickly at the front. Restorative justice is different than restorative practices. And we, in in the schools, typically talk about restorative practices. Uh, Restorative justice is, is much more confined and narrowly focused to legal proceedings. And there are actually a very set of guidelines and research around what restorative justice looks like and how it's implemented in the courts. In the schools, when we talk about restorative practices, we're talking about the whole range of supports around building relationships with students creating a culture and climate that is conducive to dialogue and conversation rather than conflict and physical violence. And restorative practices also has, at the upper end, when there is some kind of fight, this concept of restoring relationships through some kind of restorative circle, uh, a restorative conversation. So that you're rebuilding relationships and and repairing the harm that's been done. Back to Urbana schools and specifically, we actually implemented restorative practices in 2015. Which is interesting that everyone says, oh, it was 2018 that this all came about. We were doing this for almost three years before the controversy and I'm putting, I'm using air quotes for your listeners who can't see me. The way that we implemented it was was not the best from the very beginning. In 2015, we actually had uh, two amazing trainers come in from the University of Illinois Department of Psychology who were probably the, the nation's experts in restorative practices in schools. And they came in and, and did a presentation at our Winter Institute Day in February of 2015. And less than a week later, Our high school principal at the time, Mr. Matthew Stark, called me up and said, Hey, we're doing this. We're doing this now. And he really had this sense of urgency that this can't wait. That's not the way you usually roll out change. But I also want to encourage risk-taking and encourage innovation. So I said, let me know what you need and just be cautious because as you move forward, you're going to hit bumps. And so we actually enlisted the help of um, Elaine Spungen and her husband and partner, Mikhail Lubinsky, who uh, came in and, and did some wonderful work in the school's training. They're still in the schools, both school districts, doing a lot of training and coaching around implementing restorative practices. The reason why it became such a big deal in the spring of 2018 was because what I found was the the data that we were getting back showed that it was incredibly effective and incredibly available for white upper middle class students who basically had disappeared from any disciplinary data that we had, whereas students who are black and brown, students who are from a lower socioeconomic class, sometimes students with special needs or or language differences, were not having as much access to the restorative practices. the fall of 2017, and actually even before that, the, the spring of 2017, we'd been doing a lot of data digs in around the issue of student discipline. And student discipline nationwide is a very controversial issue because people have very ingrained beliefs about how students should be punished for misbehavior. Oftentimes those beliefs come from well, this is what happened to me when I was in school. That makes system-wide change or transformative change across the concept of education around educational institutions almost impossible because you're running into this ingrained generational idea of what school is supposed to look like. And so when you try and change that drastically, the pushback is pretty extreme.
0: Let's talk about the, quote, controversial issue. Your announcement to eliminate the deans at the middle and high school caused such an uproar. What brought you to that decision?
1: I already talked a little bit about the racial disparities. And the data digs that we had were showing that one thing became drastically clear, and that was that the the students who received any kind of exclusionary consequence. And by that, I mean in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, recommendation for alternative placement, recommendation for expulsion. Over 97% of those students were black and brown. And Urbana High School is a very diverse school, and that's one of its strengths. However, when you have a disproportionate number of the students of color making up almost the entirety of students who are excluded from school, that's something that as superintendent, I could not tolerate. And so I put in starting in the, in the spring of 2017, I started intervening in that process in a number of ways and starting looking for what are the systems that are in place that create this. And one of those systems was just around the way student discipline was handled at the secondary level as a whole. The difference between elementary and and secondary was that you had a second and sometimes a third layer of individuals who were responsible for discipline, which took the responsibility off the person who was actually tasked with that by their job description and by school code, which is the building principal. And the building principals were the ones that I had the most direct responsibility for. They were accountable to me. And I held them to very high standards. Almost all of them were completely on board with what I was suggesting. The issue of eliminating the dean positions, and again, it wasn't the individuals. It was the system that was in place. It was actually setting up an entirely extra layer of student discipline that pretty much exacerbated some of the systemic issues that we were having around issues of racial inequities. And instead of reducing it, it magnified it and the deans were great champions of the restorative practices. They were doing it incredibly well with the students who had access, and that was very clear.
0: But that's the key is with the students who had access. Right,
1: and those students were students that looked like you and I. They were white. They were uh, primarily upper middle class. They did not have a language other than English spoken in their home. They did not have an IEP or a 504 plan or any kind of individualized plan to deal with their behavior so that that became a, a larger and larger problem and so we we worked with the secondary principals and we had a team of people at the district office who worked really hard to say what can we do to dismantle this system of inequity and put something different in place and that's what we did and that's where a lot of the pushback came from I've owned in many places and many times the issues around communication for that, because everyone said, you're firing the deans. Well, no, not at all. We could have done a better job working and engaging with the deans early on in this process. However, this was very much an issue that we knew was going to be controversial anyway. There were some very important points at which we said, you know what, we need to keep this decision small right now. And... Then by the time it needed to go out larger, it was almost too late to engage the way we
0: should have. So flash forward to here you are talking about inequality, you're trying to fix and change the system, to now you're sitting outside of the superintendent role. Walk me through exactly what happened then.
1: I think one of the things that happened was the, uh, as a superintendent, I'm the only political appointee in a school district. And the superintendent role is one that I think is, is unique in a lot of ways in schools because many other layers of uh, schools have a lot of protections. Uh, teachers have teachers unions and tenure laws. Even principals have laws that protect them from capricious job placements or um, retaliation. Uh, teachers receive tenure after four years. Principals uh, maintain tenure. And in fact, because I was in Urbana schools as a teacher, one of the reasons why I was placed back at the high school was because I had tenure as a teacher, because I'd come up through the system. What happened was the the board had lost faith in me. That's again, a very long and complex story that revolved a lot around issues of political pressure. It revolved around a lot of issues of fear in the community. The decision to have a discussion, the first discussion we had about the deans and the first time we were talking about this publicly with the board was less than a week after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida. And so immediately the deans were associated with school safety and that I could never break that down. The deans are not and have never been envisioned as the people who will stop a bullet. They will never be the people who will stop a school shooter. Our schools are gun-free zones and, and they will continue to be as long as I have breath in me, even if I'm not a superintendent. But the, those things fuse together in people's minds. And that fusion was, was insurmountable for me in terms of communication. The deans themselves would say, we are not the ones that are first line of defense for the schools. And so that was one thing out of many that led to a lack of confidence that the board had in me. And despite the fact that I sat down with the board and I sat down with the teachers, I sat down with the deans, we had many restorative conversations. In fact, I helped create a situation where the board and I could have restorative circles because if we're really a district that believes in restorative practices, we needed to model it at the highest levels. It was clear to me that by that point, I had already lost two or three key members of the board who no matter what I said, no matter what I did, they did not want me as superintendent anymore. And those two or three key members had and still have a great deal of influence and power. And so it was, it was a matter of time. And I'll be honest with you at this point, it wasn't until the fall of 2018 that I became fully aware of that based on the board's interactions, not just with me, but also in open meetings and their comments about students.
0: Let's talk about two of the men that have been part of your life for several decades, Preston Williams and John Dimmitt. Dr. Preston Williams was brought back to fill in after you put on administrative leave. Was that hurtful? You know,
1: Dr. Williams was a powerful superintendent educational leader. He was a friend and mentor to me. I learned a great deal from him over the years. We had a great working relationship. I also know that he taught me a lot. And one of the things I noted when you had him on your podcast was he didn't say anything about me. And so I'm going to allow him and show him the same respect and just leave my statement there.
0: Let's move on to John Dimmitt. He's been there too long. I'm telling you that, Don. Why doesn't anyone ever run against him?
1: It is very hard to beat an incumbent. That's true in any level of politics. It's also more complicated when that incumbent holds a position of power on a local board. John Dimmitt is president of the board. That makes him much more difficult to beat. And the other thing is, is again, it's very unique to Urbana. Less than 2% of the school districts in the state of Illinois, there are 850 some school districts, less than 2% have boards of education that are elected entirely by local wards. And so Urbana has seven local wards that are drawn every 10 years and redrawn every 10 years based on the census. And the Board of Education are the ones that draw those lines. And that makes it very difficult for a challenger to take on an incumbent in in Urbana schools. I completely get why it was done. That was something that was done in the mid-90s as a way to reduce the power and influence of what was called West Urbana. And I will say right now, I can already hear the emails coming at me because when I've made comments about this, I get criticized from all ends of the spectrum. The most progressive liberal people in Urbana get very upset when I say this, and the most conservative people in Urbana get very upset when I say this, but that's okay. The issue was in the 80s and 90s, five of the seven board members lived in West Urbana. At that time, John Dimmitt did too. He was first elected in 1987. And there was this kind of like hub of power around Leal Elementary School on the Board of Education. It was all white. It was almost all associated with the University of Illinois or with political power in the city or county government level. And... In the 90s, there was a group of very progressive-minded people who said, we need to break this up. And the only way to break this up is to design wards. And so those wards were designed specifically to diversify the Board of Education. And what has happened is that we now have one board seat, which will always be, and has since this was done, designated for an African American individual. And uh, that seat for years was held by Benita Rollins Gay. When she stepped away from the board, no one ran against Tori Exum, who took that seat. So she ran unopposed in a seat. This was the first time that we had two incumbents who had challengers since I'd been, well, since I think since this system was put in place. People don't run against incumbents when The space is so narrow and you're talking about a few hundred votes are what you're fishing for.
0: Not everybody has the stomach to campaign either.
1: No. And it's especially hard when you're campaigning against someone that you live three blocks away from and you probably run into daily on your walks. You don't want to cause issues in the in the neighborhood.
0: Now let's flash forward to what you're working on right now. The Champaign-Urbana Area Project, are you part-time interim director? Is that your title?
1: Acting interim director of the Champaign-Urbana Area Project. It is very much a part-time gig right now, and it is really through my consulting firm that, that I'm doing this work because a piece of what I do in the consulting firm is working with small organizations and boards around issues of strategic planning. I'd become uh, acquainted with the Champaign-Urbana Area Project through my work in restorative practices and through their work in preventing and recovering from gun violence. And some of the trainings that I went to introduced me to one of the projects that Champaign-Urbana Area Project has, which is called Truce, which specifically is aimed at reducing gun violence in the community and also helping rebuild communities after a traumatic event. My relationship with Champaign Urbana area project led to a point where Patricia Avery decided to retire and the board kind of looked around. They didn't have anyone lined up and asked me if I would be willing to come in and and help be a bridge. So, this again, it's a temporary position. It's not something I'm looking to do full time, but I love this community and I love the work that CUAP stands for and the work that Miss Avery and others before her and with her have done over the years to really focus on community organizing advocacy for voices who aren't always heard, that fits right in with my wheelhouse. I want to be able to put the, the Champaign-Urbana Area Project board and the staff in a position where they're ready for a new director and I can step away and be more of a support and not be hands-on day-to-day.
0: In a year, do you see yourself with more consultant clients or do you see yourself as superintendent somewhere?
1: I do see myself with a lot more uh, consulting clients and I've actually been growing that very quickly right now and very successfully. The superintendent piece, the challenge for me right now is really does come to be about uh, my retirement. I'm five years away from retiring and because I'm no longer in the TRS system, the Board of Education has made it uh, exceptionally difficult for me to get an interview or be considered for positions that I've applied for in K-12 education anywhere in the region. That's fine. I can make a living somewhere else, but then I do have to be concerned about how I pay for my kids' college education and how I pay for my own retirement because I'm at that kind of critical space where... I do need about five more years in the system. I'm happy to be doing something that I really enjoy doing and I will not be a superintendent again. I've done it. I'm not interested in doing that again, but I do envision myself either as a history teacher or an administrator somewhere.
0: I can't imagine you stepping away from the students and the families and fellow teachers forever.
1: The one thing that I'm doing as part of my consulting and it's Lead for Equity and Engagement and this is actually something I started doing while I was out on my air quotes for your listeners, paid non-disciplinary administrative leave that started on December 4th and went through June 30th. They continued to pay me my superintendent salary, which as a taxpayer, I was a little annoyed with, to be honest with you, but as an individual, I decided if I'm accepting taxpayer money, I'm going to be serving the community. So I started working with students and families who needed advocacy work and needed some, maybe access to services. And I started doing one-on-one advocacy. I fell in love with that aspect of being an educator and being a, a member of this community. And so I'll continue to do that work. And that also is not something that I do uh, to earn money. I do that pretty much free of charge. But one of the things that I am doing through both the Champaign-Urbana area project and my LLC, is I'm right now in the works of planning some advocacy workshops for parents so that I'm working with several other parent advocates in the, in the community, and we're gonna put on a, a series of workshops for parents so that parents feel more comfortable advocating for themselves and their students in a variety of situations, not just with the schools, but also with social service agencies or um, in other spaces.
0: I have two more questions before I let you go. You've been identifiable by your bow ties. Do you own any long ties?
1: I own a lot of long ties. In fact, when I first started teaching, I wore ties to school almost every day. I was the teacher who was almost always in a tie. And for a while, I had enough ties so that I could make it through the entire first semester without a repeat. I have a closet full of long ties still. My bow tie collection has been growing for not decades. Uh, My son was actually in eighth grade. And so that was seven years ago, eight years ago. So it's only eight years that I've I've been wearing bow ties. He and I both got a box for Christmas from my father-in-law. In In his retirement, he is doing a whole variety of things, including writing short stories. And so he wrote a short story about uh, how he learned how to tie a bow tie. And he enclosed that in a box and my son and I each got a bow tie and we opened them up. We looked at them and kind of shrugged our shoulders and decided we were going to see who could learn how to tie it faster. But I've been wearing bow ties ever since and I've now, they're now kind of a thing.
0: Before I let you go, I have to ask, is there anything you would change about the last few years? Any choices that you would make differently?
1: The choices I would make are small. I'm I'm a very self-reflective person and I always think about how I could do things better and how I could have done things better. There are things that I have processed so many times and sometimes I've done the process them very publicly. Uh, A lot of it is about communication and collaboration that I could have done better. And I've learned from those experiences, but overall systems need to change and systems need to change pretty drastically in order to provide the kind of education that we as a community and we as a nation purport to believe in when we talk about public education transforming lives, well, public education is, is continuing to do what it's always done, which is sort and select people. And that's not what public education should be. And so would I have done things differently on a micro scale? Yes. On a major scale? I was going to swing away at the policy and practices that were continuing to negatively impact students and families who have been traditionally marginalized by our systems.
0: Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Dr. Don Owen, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you. It was my pleasure.